Change can feel scary, but it can also be exhilarating. A time to stretch our boundaries, embrace new opportunities, and a chance to start something new. Welcome to Business Unknown with me, Dan Nicholl, made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Hello and a very, very warm welcome to another edition of Business Unknown, made just for you by Brightrock. As each week I catch up with a business leader, an entrepreneur, somebody who in South Africa has made a considerable difference in his or her life, led a very interesting, often entertaining business journey, and they give us the highs and the lows of that journey, and then with a click of the fingers, just solve all of our economic woes and overturn that 51% GDP deficit that we delighted in during the course of this week. We've had some wonderful guests on the show so far. People like Sonia Debrain, like Ravi Naidu, like Michael Yordan, Francois Pinar, all giving us really interesting and, and very different perspectives on not just their own lives, but also where we find ourselves now in South Africa. Challenging times, but there has been a note of optimism from everyone. And I'm hoping we're going to get a note of optimism today because our guest is somebody who I've known for a long time. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, I think technically he's a cyclist who plays some golf, but in between he runs a rather successful IT business. In fact, it is one of South Africa's great success stories. A group of mates who got together in a garage, had this mad idea, and now it sits as one of the leading IT businesses in the broader sense, not just in South Africa, but I think anywhere in the world. And it's one South Africa can be extremely proud of. The founder, the chairman, uh, the head of cycling is the man we speak to today. It gives me an enormous amount of pleasure to say hello to Jeremy Ord. Morning, Dan. How are you? Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's great to see you. Well, thank you. thank you for joining us. In what are very, very strange times, we're going to be telling your story and looking at it in just a moment, but give us a quick update to kick off with. How has Jeremy Ord, both personally and professionally, managed the last few months? What have been an, it's been an unprecedented space for all of us. Yeah, it has. And I happen to be in Plettenberg Bay in about the 19th of March, I think it was, when they announced this lockdown. And anyway, I, I stayed on in PET for another six, seven weeks, I think it was. Um, it was interesting because we were properly locked down, but um, and, and also some incredibly strange rules. You weren't allowed on the beach. You weren't allowed to swim. So even though I have a house on the beach, we weren't allowed to be there. So um, it was quite interesting and challenging from that point of view. Fortunately, the weather was magnificent and, and it made it easier. So yeah, it went quite quickly. It wasn't bad, and then we went back to Joburg, and life carried on. So you know, it's um, but it was it was it was interesting to say the least. It's been a time for most of us, I think, for a lot of reflection, both on who we are and, and what we do. And I'd, I'd like to get a sense of some of that reflection a little later on. But let's start off with the Dimension Data story. I, I almost feel like I'm part of the, the greater Dimension Data family. We've done so many events together. And yeah, I realized as I was thinking about this yesterday, that although I know the, the broader tale of how this business came together, I don't know the exact details. So I'll ask you to fill me in uh, the legend of a, a group of mates getting together in a garage, if that was in fact the case, uh, deciding to start this business uh, with a, an idea and not much more than that. Tell us how that came together and what the uh, the start of the Dimension journey was. Well, yeah, I think it, it really started when Doc Watson and myself were at school and um, we, we met in first year of high school and we became best friends and we remain best friends to, to this day. So Doc and I are more like brothers than anything else. But in those early days at school, we always felt we wanted to have a business on our own and we wanted to run our own business. We didn't want to, to really work for people. And 
Um, as it happened, you know, I, I along the way I learned how to be to to I, I was taught some programming while I was funny enough waiting to go and live in Canada. My brother lived there, and I was going to go and live in Canada and do my to do some um, articles and stuff. During that period, I was playing a lot of sport, playing a lot of cricket and rugby. And the guy said to me to come and why don't I was doing nothing, and he said, why don't you learn how to program while I was waiting for um, a, my interview. And I got involved in, in the computer industry, as I said, learning how to program. And um, after about three years, it was a company called Olivetti that I taught. Everything was different at Olivetti. If you had round holes in, in, a, in, a, in a punch machine in those days, Olivetti used to have square rolls. So everything was their own standard and their own sort of Italian way of doing things. Anyway, my boss at the time was a marketing manager of, of, the, of Olivetti, and he moved over to a, a networking communications company and uh, he asked me to join him with him go along with him which I did do and during that time I met up with some guys really clever technical guys and developed strong communication skills in the art of network communication in other words computer communications and 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 in 1983 the three of us three of us from that company broke away and formed Dimension Data and um we picked up an agency, an American agency, for a bunch of computer PC communication products that, uh, that allowed you to communicate with mainframe computers. And our, the mainstream dimension data was very much a, a wide area networking business, providing long-distance long connectivity between computers and terminals, et cetera. And so we had this micro to mainframe connectivity thing, and we didn't know what to do with the product. And I asked Doc and Puppy to join us, which Richard came to join us, and they did do. So we started a company called Causeway Communications, which was a subsidiary of Dimension Data, and then later was incorporated into Dimension Data. So those are the beginnings from those days, from the vision of school, really, to say, you know, we think we know what we're doing. We thought that we knew what we're doing in this, this world. And it was a journey, you know, it was a journey that was amazing in terms of fun, uh, hard work, but a strong determination to to succeed and to be our own to, to determine our own destiny. I think we started the business really, oh yeah, from a garage with, with no money. But we had strong community. We understood the network communication skills that were required for the computer in for computers to communicate with with one another, and that stood us in good stead. I, I think the other notable thing was that we even used to bring in modems and into South Africa. It was a regulated environment, and the modem allowed two devices to communicate over a long distance line. And one of the cool things we did in those days was we used to bring in these modems and we used to work all night putting lightning arresters on, on these modems to make sure that they didn't blow up when, when there was a lightning strike or something in South Africa. But that was part of the fabric, you know, there was part of it, like 12 people with soldering irons, getting together, putting the lightning arresters on and, and then packaging them again and delivering to our client base. And that set the tone for, for dimension data I think the the type of per company we are, relationship company, um, innovative, very innovative in those days. Leaders, uh, because of sanctions, we had to we had to do our own marketing, had to have our own technical skills, had to had to put our, had to craft our own solutions. Um, and I think that's probably why the longevity has been what it has been, because um, you know we we grew up in a tough world and we had to be we had to be resilient. Um, we were little English-speaking boys out of Johannesburg, um, and you know it was very dominated by um, sort of the 
telecom industry and, and the like were very regulated environments and very closed environments and very protected environments. But we challenged all of those. We challenged the, the IBM mainframe dominance. We challenged the, the dominance of certain suppliers with telecom, et cetera, et cetera. And um, all stood us in good stead. And here we are. We're still around today. Uh, the success story has been incredible. And if you go back to when you started in 1983, one thing to have a vision as a couple of mates to not have to work for anybody else, quite another to create a company that spread out right across the world and had the success that it has had. Uh, how, what, what were you envisaging when you started it in terms of how far this might go? And what do you think, if you can put your finger on it, has been the difference that it has allowed Dimension Data to go from a couple of mates in a garage into this company that sprawls over the world? Um, Dan, you know, I th- we were obviously we were proud of what we'd achieved and we, we, we loved what we did. And, you know, I always say the best thing in my life is I go to work every day and my best friends are there. So I spend eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours a day with my very best friends. And, and it's always been that way. It's, uh, you, you just get blessed. And I'm, I'm very blessed in that regard. But it was tough, you know. We, we, have, we used to have really, really tough sales meetings every Monday because we pushed each other to, to achieve things. But there was, never, there was never animosity around that. You know, it was tough in those meetings and harsh words were expressed between parties. But we'd walk out the door and we'd say, okay, well, where are we playing golf on Saturday? It was that type of situation. So it was very much work hard, and, but also have fun. And I think that's always has been big thing. It's been a lot of fun for me. It's been a lot of fun for my colleagues. And it's been a long journey that, that has taken us all over the world. And I think we had a strong belief in ourselves. When, when we set out, did we think we, our first expansion would be into Australia? No, we didn't at all. But we just felt at the time that... Australia was a market which was similar to South Africa, English-speaking, um, similar in terms of deregulation, etc. And we were fortunate to bump into a bunch of South Africans who moved to Australia, and they had a similar type of business, and we bought a controlling interest in it. And, and that was part of our expansion. But it really stemmed out of us being strongly independent, having to be self-reliant in terms of technical skills, marketing skills, solution skills. And we just thought we could take on the world. And, and you know, as such, we, we built a business. Well, you did take on the world and you did so very successfully. And not without challenges. You've alluded to some of them. I think we've learned a lot of lessons on this particular show from the tougher times that people have had in their journeys through life and through business. Has there been a particular low point, a particular moment that even Jeremy Ord thought, I don't know how we're going to get through this? Yep, you know, um, in, in end of the end of 1999 era, there was Y2K, which was a um, really, a, I think, a, you know, a lie that the computer industry told the world that, that the world would come to an end if they didn't update their software, hardware, or their equipment because uh, the, the computer chips wouldn't be wouldn't be able to go beyond. As soon as the clock turned to the year 2000, everything would collapse in a heap. And um, it was a very successful marketing exercise, and that people were buying and buying and buying, and software was being bought and licenses were being purchased and the whole world was in a panic and and equally chief executives had no idea about the IT industry they relied heavily on their, their information offices etc and um, and so there was a massive spend on on technology and and your margins were huge you know 50% plus margins were the norm and then came 2001 or when the clock turned in New Zealand was the first country to come online and nothing happened in New Zealand nothing nothing fell apart we had a big we had a big um, sort of uh, 
disaster center at the campus in, in Randburg, where we operate from in Branston, and nothing happened in South Africa, nothing. And as the clock turned around the world, nothing happened anywhere in the world. And then I think then the realization was that everybody had spent so much money and this was just probably the biggest con that had ever happened. And every one of us in the industry were guilty of it. <clears throat> there was a hype. Y2K was the, was the word and it was almost like a COVID-19 type situation, but a technology COVID-19 situation, to be honest. And so, yeah, and then from middle of 2001, the market collapsed for, for the IT industry and it was extremely difficult. We at that stage had about 11,000 people, I think, working for us. And we had to then get rid of 3,500 people, go right back to the core of what we started the business in, in terms of focus. And I think that was a big lesson. I mean, I remember Doc Watson was running Europe for us at that stage, and I said to him, you know, Germany wasn't performing very well, and I said, Doc, you've got to get rid of people, and he flatly refused to get rid of people. <laughs> there was my best friend telling me I'm not going to do it, but the reality was we did have to do it. And that was, that was really hard. It was hard seeing people that you're friendly with, their colleagues and, and your best mates, you know, leaving the industry and having to go and find work elsewhere. Um, and, and then to build up the, the um, confidence of our, our people that we, we had done business with for many years was also took a long time. And, and secondly, you, and then lastly, you came back into the industry and suddenly CEOs were very tech aware because now they had, to, they had to understand what was going on. And, and so there was no more nonsense going on in that, from that respect. But hard, hard time. It was a hard time. It took us about three years to emerge out of it. And we slowly we had to get rid of businesses, sell business. We bought a business, for instance, in America for $400 million just at that time. Uh, it was a software business. We sold it back. We sold it for $10 million two years later. <laughs> that, was, that was the nature of the beast at that moment in time. So that was the hardest and toughest time was during that period when, when we had to look inwards again at ourselves and had to restructure businesses and just had to survive. You know, it was as simple as that, just survive. But we emerged out of it and we're stronger for it. And I think a big part of that successfully emerging from it is what you refer to, the, the closeness of friendships. Something that's always impressed me about Dimension Data is with all my interactions, despite the size of the company, there is such a family feel. Everybody seems to be so close-knit, and it's very much an anomaly in my corporate experience in terms of just how, uh, just how happy, friendly, together Dimension Data seems to be as a company. Yeah, uh, and you know, look, my assistant Michelle has been with me for twenty-seven years, I think. So you know, and, and quite frankly, she she could run the company. She just knows everything. And, and there are many the, things suggest she does, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. I agree. <laughs> and um, yeah, we're just so lucky, you know. And, and I mean, like Jason, my one of my colleagues is now running the NTT side of a business in out of London, and you know, just we've had an incredible bunch of people with a lot of like-mindedness to be honest you know people have they've joined that they join and the system is is so strong that it makes sure that you become part of the team or you will leave the system so i suppose that's the bottom line you also have a tremendous friendship a tremendous partnership uh, with a rather dashing paul newman type figure down in stellenbosch who makes some rather nice wine which allows us to segue appropriately into the food that we have for company today because this comes from stellenbosch directed to us both from bertus Besson and his overture restaurant there's some uh, some great pork crackling which i'm always rather fond of some aubergine dip some gnocchi another great meal i'm gonna have my first mouthful and you're more than welcome to as well there jeremy uh, as a 
do try try some of this food. Uh, the food side of Jeremy Ord, I know wine's very important to you. Are you uh, a wizard in the kitchen? Is is going out to restaurants something that's quite important to you? Uh, <laughs> firstly, I'm not a wizard in the kitchen, not by any means. Um, but yeah, one thing I do, I, I like wine. Obviously, uh, you know, in the wine industry, um, but. Um, I I really do like going out to restaurants. I love I love entertaining. I love sitting around a table with friends and and having wine, good food and wine, and enjoying the banter and talking nonsense and whatever else. And, and I've been lucky enough to travel around the world and I've played a lot of golf and stuff all over the world. And I think after a day of playing golf or whatever you're doing or working, whatever, I I think there's nothing better than to sit around a table and have a meal and have some wine and have with with good friends and. You know, and, and just relax. You know, I'm, I'm a strong believer in working hard, but I also believe that you should be able to play and enjoy yourself. So it's, it's a very important part of my life. Yeah. The wine that we would be having as part of those dinners would uh, preferably be from the Waterford Estate. How did that partnership, that relationship come about and how hands-on are you in this particular business? Well, okay, so I started out not knowing anything about wine other than my wife said to me at one stage when I, that when I, being Jeremy, died, um, she wanted to live in the Cape and she wanted to live on a wine farm. So we came one weekend and she found four hectares in Constantia and um, she was quite keen on it. And I happened to be reading the Saturday newspaper in Cape Town, the August, I think it was. And I saw there was a wine farm, 12 hectare wine farm for sale in Somerset West. And um, anyway, I said, let's go and have a look. We went there and we couldn't get in. The agent said, no, he, could, he was too busy. He couldn't see us until the following Tuesday. Anyway, my, Lee went and... Um, she went and knocked on the door at, the, at the, the, the farm for sale. And as it happened, and so the, the owner was there, and as it happened, um, we went through it. And it, was, it was between Fahgeliachen and Morgansted, the farm. It was a small little farm. And as it happened, um, fortuitously or by mistake, um, the, the owner of that farm was, happened to be some distant relation of, relation of mine, and they'd been from wine farmers in the Constantia area. Anyway, so it almost seemed like fate that I was going to get into the wine industry without knowing anything about it. And as it happened, I wanted to make an offer. I did make an offer on that place, and I found I'd met Kevin Arnold before at, at a good friend of mine, Johnny Nell's house, and Johnny has a, a wine range called Camberley. And I'd met Kevin there, and I knew nothing about wine. So I phoned Kevin. I said, Kevin, I'm about to make a, buy a wine farm, and um, I need a winemaker because I don't know anything about this. And so I said, find me one. Anyway, a few days later, Kevin phoned me back and said, and he was the winemaker at Riston Fred at the time, and he said, um, you know, he's thought about it and he'd love to take up the challenge. So anyway, I thought, wow, there's this well-known winemaker, Kevin Arnold, coming on board. I haven't even got a farm yet, but I've got a winemaker. So I had Kevin on board, and as it happened, the, the guy who owned um, uh, Morgansted had first-right refusal on this 12-hectare farm that I was going to buy, and so I didn't get that farm. So then. I had a winemaker, no farm, and then I had to find land. And as as and then Kevin and I started looking for the farm, and we found we found the most beautiful farm um, in up in um, in where we are today, Waterford. And it was a farm owned by the Stutterford family. They had five portions, and there were five kids, and each kid owned a few portions or one portion. And so we bought two portions, or I bought two portions of the farm, and. Really, there was a bit of fruit on it, and there was a bit of old grapes, old vines on it. But there was no, 
There was no winery. There was no nothing. So we had to build from 1997. We built the whole place from scratch. It was built from scratch. Kevin became the winemaker. And, yeah, and it's been a really, really interesting and, and actually lovely journey along the way. So, it's, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. And, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a good venture. I enjoy it. As, as does my wife, half of my wine cellar is full of Kevin Arnold Shiraz, which I think she would bath in if she had the opportunity. <laughs> Absolutely loves it, and, and rightfully so. And it's, it's one of your areas of passions. Uh, you, you've got a, a few others. I think probably next on the list would be cycling, and the relationship that Dimension Data has had with cycling for me fits into two spaces. One is that the chairman is probably the best amateur cyclist in South Africa in his age group, and the other is your relationship with international cycling. And that seemed to me to be a combination of your particular passion but also the chance to see uh, a business where data could feed into sport which made for a really good sponsorship opportunity that showcased who you were as a brand you know i've, I've loved cycling for many years and i was i've been lucky enough to to ride with a good bunch of guys and and i'm just one of those people you know like i decided we'd get into golf and i said we've got to do golf differently so we sponsored the dimension data pram which is a sort of a, a mimics what you do in the in the, the big tournaments in Pebble Beach, that was the other big tournament. But, and you know, that's just the way I am. I like to do things slightly differently. So I got involved in cycling because I enjoyed it. And I, I happened to meet some mad guys from the south of Johannesburg, Gary, Gary Bienneke and Mark Bienneke, who are legendary riders in South Africa, world champions in their age groups and things like that. And, and they just took me along a great journey with cycling. And along the way, I met people like Doug Ryder, Doug, um, was riding for the Microsoft team at that stage. Then he became manager. Then he owned his own team. And we've always just been friends. And um, anyway, so then we were looking for a property. And then I got a call from a marketing lady of mine in London and said, you know, I've been approached by um, somebody from the ASO, which is the people who own the Tour de France. And they're looking for a, a technology partner to sponsor their, their technology input to the Tour de France, et cetera. And, and she gave me the figure. I said, well, find out the figures. She found out the figures, and it looked relatively cheap. So that was the end of November and um, of that year, and it looked exciting. And, and so I then came down to – I was in Plettenberg Bay on holiday, and I, I happened to see Doug Rada walking across the road, and I shouted, hey, Doug, from, come and see me at my house because I want to talk to you about something. And Doug came across my house. I said, look, we've got this opportunity to do this with ASO. What do you think? And Doug said it was a great idea. But Doug, being the salesman he was, said to me, oh, well, Tim, you know, I've got the cycling team and I've, I'm trying to get into the Tour de France. We're a second division team. I'm trying to get into the Tour de France. And if you tell Jan Lemonier, who's the boss of uh, ASO, that, you know, we're a great South African team, maybe we'll get a chance of getting into the Tour de France. So I'm trying to get advice from Doug and Doug's trying to sell to me. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, as it happened, um, I flew to, after that holiday, I flew to Paris, and in six weeks we did a deal with, um, with the ASO to become their technology partner, and, and, and that has endured eight, nine years now. And, and it was, it's been a great journey because it allowed us, it gave us incredible coverage over those three weeks of the Tour de France. I mean, I, I can't remember the figures, but we got something like four billion eyeballs over the three weeks onto the Dimension Data logo. And, and it, it just allowed us to really extend the nature of what was going on in cycling in those days to what we were able to do today. And even today, you know, 
We've got so much more information. We can give you stats on every on every a database of stats on every rider when they're likely to fail in the race, when they're likely to slow down. Um, the, the fringe producers don't always take advantage of that, but I think that'll come with time. So it's been an incredible relationship, and um, Doug, Doug did succeed in giving making us give him a small sponsorship in that first year. <laughs> he, he begged the living daylights out of us. We were sitting in the start of the race in. Utrecht, I think it was, yeah, and, and Doug was crying because he needed a bit more money for to get more riders and da-da-da. So we agreed to give him a small sponsorship. And Doug, in his own style, increased the sponsorship until we became the major sponsor. So, so we have a technology partner. We have a cycling team. Um, but it's been a really, really good journey. And it's, it has allowed us to explore and, and to extend the, the, the reach of Dimension Data throughout the world. Doug Ryder is both a very persuasive man and uh, enormously annoying until he gets what he wants. He's uh, very, very good at that. Uh, I was with him, uh, with you guys, uh, a few years ago, and I remember having a look inside the team bus and getting a sense of just what the the enormous data input is. It was a uh, was staggering to watch and uh, made me even more impressed by by the entire operation. You've uh, you've got that interest. You've got the the broader company as a whole. You've also got a situation where South Africa, which is home, is facing some almighty challenges. And we're all extremely aware of those numbers this week being particularly depressing. How upbeat, how downbeat are you about where we are as South Africa? And uh, I know there isn't a, a golden solution that we can give immediately, but, but what should we be thinking? What should we be doing to try and push us back in a direction that gives us a little more hope and optimism? You know, I, I was I was listening to a, a podcast recently by uh, a retired professor from Singapore, and and it was so. I mean, not that I'm sure you know about it, but in Singapore, what they do is they get their brightest and best people. They send them overseas. They educate them. They make them the best people. But the first thing they do is pull them back into the back into government. So the cleverest people, the, the brightest, and the guys with the best ideas work for government. They get obviously well paid, well looked after, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the triangle starts with the brains at the top, and then it you know it cascades down and it gets broader and broader. And I, and I think we have a, obviously we have a brain, a brain drain in this country, but you know sometimes one has to one has to question the, the the level of type of people that we're getting into those environments, and and so we have a challenge in that respect. Uh, and I think the challenge is how do we pull this economy right? How do we start creating jobs again? How do we, um, you know, how do we we've got to educate people? We've got to take responsibility for ourselves. Um, and, uh, you know, the, one has to question, you know, some of the morals of some people, you know, what, what is the ultimate, what do they want in this world? But we were really lucky as a business during COVID because uh, we developed a remote solution, which was amazing in terms of, allowing executives to work at home. We've put in a 200 meg high-speed line into their houses. We provided them with a workstation with a battery backup because of the power issues. And, and then we provided security right into their house in terms of IT security. Applications were same latency as they get in their, in their offices. So we provided, and that's, that's just a world-beating solution that we in South Africa put together. And, and there's been an incredibly big rollout. I mean, one bank has taken thousands and thousands of these solutions from us for their remote employees, even people working in the townships in the poorest areas, to allow them to work remotely. So out of this comes an O, and I suppose so. I see lots of opportunity. And then we all, we've been sort of pushing the digital age 
to our client base for ages. And, you know, it's really hard to push the digital age when people don't want to listen. So <laughs> we're talking about digitalization. You know, you've got to move to digital. Got to move, got to be this digital, that digital. And, and people would look at you and think, oh, yeah, you're crazy. Or we would say to you, you need to get a video conferencing solution, and then you don't have to travel that much. And people say, what, you know what, I like traveling. I like going to London for a one-hour meeting and then flying back home the same night. You know, that, that was the mindset. Well, I love going to Cape Town and back. And if you go to Cape Town Air, Airport on a Monday morning, you see thousands of people moving from Cape Town to Joburg for the week and then back home again on the weekend. And so what did that do? I mean, you know, who'd, who'd heard, who really had heard of Microsoft Teams before, before COVID? And who had heard of Zoom? Nobody had heard of that. So the, we do have challenges. We've got massive challenges in this country. We have, but there's also opportunity. We have the opportunity to allow people to work remotely. We have the opportunity to, to educate people remotely using this, this type of medium. Where the government has failed in terms of the physical class, we can do it on a virtual basis. At Dimension Data, we've been running a, a Saturday school for 15 years. And our success rate is amazing with matric kids, teaching them maths and science. That's the most important thing. And, and so we had like incredible success factor there. So out of the, out of the difficulty comes opportunity, I suppose. And, and we as South Africans have to pull together and to work together on this issue. But it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. And I think the government's big issue is how do they get the confidence of the people? You know? and people just don't, don't trust what they hear. But there is opportunity. There is opportunity, but it's going to be hard. I think the ideas are certainly there, and you've suggested many good ones. It's finding the people in the right places to execute them that is continuing to be our challenge. But there, there are definitely some notes of optimism there, and uh, I'll take some cheer from them. I'm also taking some cheer while I was listening to Jeremy there of some uh, some olive chia butter with some aubergine dip, which is going down particularly well and adding to uh, towards a delightful conversation. Just two final questions for you, Jeremy, because I know you've got a, a very busy day of tasting wine at Waterford purely for quality control purposes. Uh, the first of them, I give you a call. Uh, I won't say give you a call. I get in touch with you in 10 years time because I want to do something not dissimilar to what we're doing now. How am I getting in touch with you and, uh, and what is the technology that we're using in 10 years time to communicate with each other? <laughs> I suppose we'll be using a medium similar to this, but it'll be so, you know, everybody will have abundance of bandwidth and you'll, you'll, it'll be very fast and it'll be instantaneous. Um, but I'd rather you got in touch with me face to face, to be honest, over a bottle with a bottle of wine and, you know, we can, have more fun that way um yeah so i don't think it'll i think it's just going to accelerate i think the whole world's going to accelerate in, in terms of the digital workspace but I, I and i just hope we don't lose that personal interaction i think that's the most important all right well i shall diarize dinner with jeremy over a bottle of a gym in 10 years time but hope, hopefully many before then final one for you and this is always one that uh, that i'm fascinated by the answer from the, uh, the money comes in and the script is done. It's the Jeremy Ord Dimension Data story. Who's playing Jeremy Ord in the movie? <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't know. Um, ideally, for me, who would I like to have? I, and this is a selfish thing. My son, my son would be my, my number one choice, to be honest with you. Oh. And he's living in London at the moment, but I really want him back. Yeah, it's, a, it's been a difficult, difficult aspect for a lot of families dotted around the world and uh, probably one of the hardest parts of lockdown. Yeah, and I, and I think my vision going forward is, uh, if, you know, we've we, we got quite a lot of things going on, but I'm desperately keen for him to work with me. 
side by side, it could be so nice. It would be a formidable team, and I've got no doubt it will happen. Uh, Jeremy, it's been a pleasure spending some time with you, uh, sneaking in a little of Bertus Passant's food along the way and uh, and sharing some of your story. It's been a terrific story, and I think it's it's really important at the moment to, to share our good news stories, to remind ourselves as a country, as a people, of what is possible, what we have done, and from there what we can do going forward, and to get some measured optimism and some, some great ideas about our future. So thank you for that. Thank you for the time today. Enjoy those bottles of wine this afternoon and uh, may the Dimension Data story continue with many more uplifting and inspiring chapters. Thank you, Dan, and thanks for the invite. Uh, it really has been a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Definitely. Over wine, a golf course, a good dinner. Jeremy, you're the chairman, the founder of Dimension Data. It's a South African company that's taken on the world, taken over the world, and given us so many reasons to smile as we take pride in another great South African triumph. This has been Business Unknown, made for you just by Brightrock, talking to great South African leaders and entrepreneurs, telling their stories, and getting a little hope in what are very tough times here in South Africa. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you back again next week with another fabulous South African with some more words of inspiration. I'm Dan Nicol. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Business Unknown with Dan Nicol. This show was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. 